All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz Ministry, Word and Sacraments, and in Caridian. Again, designed for pastors and people of the 16th century, but with a view toward all centuries as to what's essential to know and what's essential uh, to preach. We're looking at the section on the Word, Holy Scripture, page 40 and 41, and we're about to go into the section, The True Ancient Catholic Religion or Faith. And again, last week, we introduced ourselves to some concepts, or I introduced you to some concepts, again, um, not from Chemnitz text specifically, but we talked about the Norma Normans and the Norma Normata, the norming norm, which is scripture, and the normed norm, which are the creeds or the the symbols of the Christian faith. And then we also talked about uh, something unique to the development of Lutheranism, and that is the subscription to the Lutheran confessions as a symbol, as a creed, as a a norma, normata, normed norm, and the different kinds of subscription there, the quia and the quatinus, the quia subscription being that of the LCMS, that because the Book of Concord teaches what the scriptures teach, we subscribe to it, as opposed to the quatinus, the insofar as the Book of Concord teaches what the scriptures teach, we subscribe to it. So um, just wanted to bring those principles back to your mind as they might benefit and behoove us as we go into this next section. Before we do, let's begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. At the bottom of page 41, we have question 41, which is as follows. Is any new doctrine to be set forth, or new faith to be received in the church of God? Chemnitz's answer, by no means. For there is only one God, so also there is no faith but one. And thus, uh, excuse me, and this is that one true and very ancient faith, which is founded not in new, but most ancient doctrine, and is in the true ancient and Catholic Church. For these things are and have been joined and mutually connected. God, the Word, faith, the Church, salvation, and life eternal. Okay, hopefully this is self-evident, but there is one faith that is handed down that is to be believed. And here we have another Latin distinction that can be helpful, and that's the fetus quae and the fetus qua. The fetus Quai is the content or substance of the faith that is to be believed. So when you say the Christian faith, 
What do you mean? The faith in the heart that trusts God or the content of the word of God that has been given to us? If you mean the content of the word of God that has been given to us, that's the fetus quae. That's the, the faith once delivered for all the saints. Then you have the fetus qua, which is faith in the heart, which receives that word of God, that content, and believes. Okay? So two different ways of talking about faith. In some respects, two sides of the same coin, because you can't have fetus qua, faith of the heart, unless that faith of the heart is in something. And that something then is the fetus qua. So, what we see then here is there's one God, one word, and thus there's one faith that grasps hold of that word of God, one faith that restates that word of God. And so the project of, of the church in many respects is not only to preach the gospel, but that as the gospel goes forth and converts men, then we are conformed by the word of God into a uniform faith into a uniform confession. Make sense? Okay. And you see Chemnitz using the language here, as the Lutherans did for a long time, um, unashamed of the word Catholic. So you can make a distinction between capital C Catholic for Roman Catholic, let's say, or small c Catholic, which is what's being used here. And this comes from the word kataholos, according to the whole. So the Lutheran faith, if we can speak this way, is no different than the Christian faith, is no different than the Catholic faith, the faith which has always been held throughout all the ages. Which is why, in the Book of Concord, the modus operandi is always, in one way, shape, or form, this is what the Word of God teaches, this is what the Orthodox Church Fathers teach, this is what we teach. See them all in a line. Uh, Lutheranism is allergic to the modern phenomenon of it's just me and the Bible and we could ignore church history. So prevalent in non-denominational, quote-unquote, churches, which, of course, in fact, are denominational, but that's another story. The claim that it's just me and the Bible, or us and the Bible, or the church after the apostles has lapsed for 2,000 years, but thank goodness we finally found this 21st century preacher who gets it, you can hopefully see the error and you can hopefully see the danger. That if you ignore 2,000 years of church history, you've created a sect, you've created a cult, and that's what's being followed. Okay, so I simply bring out those points, not intending to overdo it here, but trying to get us into the mode and frame in which Chemnitz is thinking. Let me pause there, see if you have any reflections on the initial thoughts or even the review from last week. Very good. Let us power on. Question 42. If religion and faith are to be judged on the basis of antiquity... Why then do we depart from the papistic religion, faith, and church, which can defend themselves by the pretext of many years? Answer. The Pharisees charge Christ with new doctrine. Mark 1.27 Since it namely did not agree with the traditions of the ancients, 
now accepted and common for many years. And the Gentiles censure and accuse Paul's doctrine as new, because they believed their idolatry, now current for many years, to be the ancient and true religion. Now there are scripture references given throughout here. Moreover, when one inquires and disputes about the ancient faith, proofs of only some hundreds of years are not enough. But one must go so far back until it is shown and proved that the doctrine and faith in question is the very same as that which Christ and the apostles taught. The prophets prophesied, and the patriarchs testified, which was, in fact, ordained before the foundation of the world. But that true and most ancient faith and religion is found surely and firmly taught and recorded nowhere else than in the biblical scriptures. Since then, the Roman Pope has departed from this most ancient faith and has thrust on the Church of God an altogether strange and new doctrine contrary to Holy Scripture, we are obliged by divine command to go out of that congregation of evildoers, with various scripture references given, and to return to the true, ancient, and Catholic religion and faith contained in the Holy Scriptures. So I've mentioned this in this class once before, but it would be better to understand the modern Roman Catholic Church as a denomination begun at the Council of Trent. Because at the Council of Trent, they anathematize many Orthodox Church Fathers, stretching all the way back to St. Paul and the Apostles, and indeed they anathematize those writings as well, thus cutting themselves off from the halos, the whole, and ceasing to be kataholos, according to the whole, ceasing to be Catholic. So better to refer to them as the Roman Church, the Papistic Church, or even the capital R, Roman, capital C, Catholic Church. That's fine, too. In fact, it's rather delightful because there's an oxymoron there uh, in Roman, which is a particular place, and Catholic, which is universal. So there's kind of an oxymoronic nature of Roman Catholic So that is the valid critique that can be leveled at the modern Roman Catholic Church. And as you will know a tree by its fruits, what has happened since Vatican II? But the modern Roman Catholic Church has invented all manner of doctrine, especially in regard to the Pope and Mary, that the earlier church knew absolutely nothing of. Further solidifying for you, the reality that this is a new denomination that is interested in being katahalas in name only, but in fact is interested in creating its own new teaching on the basis of the authority and proclamations of the Pope. Right. So uh, in, this, in this sense, delightfully, even if you consider the Lutheran Church as a church born out of the 16th century, which I think it would be a mistake to do, we're still older than the Roman Catholic Church, which was born out of the Council of Trent. Okay. 
Anything um, befuddling or confusing here in Chemnitz or in anything uh, that I've stated after the fact? Okay, I see a hand or two. Yeah, uh, getting back to the um, Catholic Church and Vatican II, I was 10 years old at that time, and, and I remember thinking at the time that, and and Catholics commenting, that there were a lot of changes. Uh, a lot of churches went from Latin to English, uh, you know, and things like that. So it really was... Uh, as a looking as from an outside viewpoint, a new church that was kind of being hatched or whatever you want to call it. Uh, would you? So my question is: Would you say that's a due to cultural uh, changes, or cult, they wanted to be culturally relevant, or what would you pin that on? Yeah. Well, maybe a couple comments here. As Lutherans. And I think for Protestants in general, um, I don't really care if you think of us as Protestants or not. It's on the definition. But there is this impression that Rome is monolithic, that it is in fact united. Nothing could be further from the truth. Rome is an amalgam of many different denominations, all with mutually exclusive doctrines that are bound together by one reality, and that is fealty to the Pope. That's the unifying factor. What you see within the history of Roman Catholicism after the Council of Trent are actually many other fractions and divisions. What you have, for example, in uh, Rome are those who are faithful to the Council of Trent see Vatican II, for example, as a major breach. And they see um, within Roman Catholicism itself, some going so far as to say that a certain number of the popes, including all our modern ones, have been anti-popes. So they view the Roman Catholic Church as fractured and as now containing so you can you can see this in roman catholics that insist upon the latin mass and see the english and the the novus ordum as an abomination and others who see that perspective as an abomination but they're all sort of held under the same umbrella so as you know I, and i think that this is this is sort of the hidden reality is if you look at if you look at let's make a parallel if you look at lutheranism from the time of let's say 1580 the conclusion of the book of concord forward to now you see many fractures you see many different synods created you actually see the same thing within rome from the council of trent forward you see many different fractures within rome just they simply are bound together by fealty to the Pope or the idea of the Pope, as the case may be, and try to present themselves, at least externally, as monolithic, as the church that stretches all the way back to St. Peter. You've heard these claims on the Roman Catholic radio station. I mean, they're rather absurd. So I think it is good for us to realize, you know, what Rome is and, you know, of the of the Lutherans that I've been aware of, both laity and clergy, that have gone 
to Rome, left the Lutheran community and gone to Rome, it has been almost universally not on account of doctrine. No one says, you know what, I think the book of Concord is fatally flawed on the article of justification. No one says, you know what, I've read the Council of Trent, and I've read Martin Kemnitz's examination, and I find Martin Kemnitz to be an error and the Council of Trent to be correct, and that's why I'm going. No one says that. What is almost universally stated is, oh, it's the church that stretches back to St. Peter. Oh, it's the monolithic Western church. Oh, it's the greater unity. Oh, it's the greater authority. It has the aesthetics. It's got the smells and bells. Those are the real reasons why people move from Lutheranism over to Roman Catholicism. So that's worth keeping in mind as well, that very, most often, in fact, I, in my own experience, it's all anecdotal, but in my own experience, most often, why they go over is with some naivete as to the doctrinal diversity and conflict within Roman Catholicism itself. So whereas uh, the LCMS maybe just to zoom in on a particular tree in this forest, whereas the LCMS sort of fought the battle for the Bible, we believe the Bible is the word of God, Rome had no such battle, and you can go find people who believe in Roman Catholicism as we believe, and people who believe as the higher critics believe. Uh, When the Pentecostal movement came around and rolled its way through the LCMS, maybe the late 60s, but especially the 70s and early 80s, we more or less have dealt with that, with the exception of some very fringe groups. Rome never dealt with that. You'll find wildly Pentecostal uh, movements, people, groupings within Rome. So Rome is a big tent kind of Christianity, I mean, where, you know, Christianity in air quotes, but it's a big tent where it's just you all come as long as you bend the knee to the Pope, we can all get along, or at least pretend to. So it's not until you jump ship into that that you realize what it actually is, and you start to study that history, you realize what it actually is, and you go, okay, it's no less messy than Lutheranism, let's say make that term as broad as we possibly can. Sorry to ramble a little bit. I know I... Okay, I don't know. I don't have a clue who was first, but please. So, Pastor, uh, that's, that's helpful that you're saying that before the Reformation, various denominations did exist, but they were under the tent of the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so these two major tense, if you will, had mult, had denominations within them, and I was thinking that denominations only came about through the through and after the Reformation. So, if uh, is yeah, that... that's one of their common apologetic points: is hey, before the Reformation, we didn't have denominations. Oh. Uh, it's patently false. Now, a very good book would be uh, Werner Ehlert's uh, "The History of the Eucharist in the Early Church," or the title, something to that effect. Because what he shows is that from the very beginning, from the earliest days of the church, even prior to a split between East and West, there are what we would call denominations. 
there are communions that are exclusive one of the other, which is really what a denomination is, mutually exclusive communions. So denominations are as old as Christendom. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that in the West, prior to the Reformation, it's not monolithic either. There are all manner of controversies and divergences of opinion. Even leading up to the Lutheran Reformation, there are major, major differences between, say, Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus, the Via Antiqua, the Via Moderna and other deep-rooted um, theological and philosophical questions. So in the West itself, prior to the Reformation, there is all this different movement and controversy going on, and it's anything but monolithic. The other thing I think we have to keep in mind is we do this to ourselves a little bit as Lutherans, is we think uh, maybe the gospel was non-existent in the church right up until... Uh, God enlightened Martin Luther with the uh, with Romans one, you know, and suddenly the light bulb that had been off for centuries suddenly went on in the church. I, nothing could be I, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, Christ's church is going to exist, and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. it. The faith in the true gospel existed all the way up and to and through. Part of what Luther taps into and part of why the Lutheran Reformation resonates and then why there are all these other radical reformers is because there were already such fractures in the Western church that many were looking for an ostensible reason to drive their agenda home and took advantage of that situation to really articulate, hey, no, the church needs to conform to our way of thinking um, or it's a breach of fellowship. So one way to, I think a more accurate way to think of the Reformation also is that the events with Martin Luther uh, were done in a sort of powder keg environment where there were pre-reformers, frequently mentioned are Huss and Wycliffe, um, who had much more Lutheran views, much more scriptural views of justification, and were subsequently persecuted by the church. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. Where did these guys learn it from? Did they not have sympathizers? They most certainly did. Did they not have sympathizers after they were burned at the stake? They most certainly did. So even the church prior to the the church in the West prior to the Reformation was anything but monolithic. You can read about all of this if you like, um, but you kind of have to get into some of the medieval histories, and I'm hardly an expert in it. But uh, just even dabbling a little bit will give you a much better lay of the land you'll realize that the fracturing of communions and the divergence of belief, the holding of mutual ex- mutually exclusive beliefs, are common in the Western church, and they're frankly common in the whole church up into the break, and then common in the Western church up into the Reformation. Bringing this to rather current times, this became very real to me about the Roman Catholic Church. I, investigated the Roman Catholic Church at one time. And this would have been like the 1950s into the 1960s. And I wish I had kept this as evidence. I actually bought a book cover for a book of the Mass that I bought. And I got almost a whole year off in purgatory for buying it. Just in case, Very real. It was so many (laughs) days. It was short of 365 (laughs) days, but it was like 300 Somewhat days. Right. And the other thing, back before Vatican II, 
the Catholic kids would have the answer ready when you would say, how come you have the Mass in Latin? So I would say, how come your sermons are in English? That they didn't have an answer for. So that's my experience growing up with Roman Catholicism. And then I wanted to say, the Catholic Church today is in a real, real mess. And I have heard a die-in-the-wool Catholic say over national television, radio, over radio, that he's not ready to say that the current pope is the Antichrist with the capital A, but he is ready to say he's the Antichrist with a small letter A. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my friends who are Catholic, they, they won't even go to Mass, one of them. Yeah, I, I mean, the... Those that live in glass houses shouldn't cast stones. I mean, the church everywhere is a mess, to be sure. But the idea that Rome has somehow escaped this is just absolute. I, the, the sexual scandals have rocked, uh, globally have rocked the church and rocked the priesthood um, in Rome, such that there's a huge uh, priest shortage there. Uh, I heard some figures that... There is something like, I can't remember the exact figure, but something like six to 9,000 Roman Catholics for every priest in the greater L.A. area. How are you going to go to confession? Um, so it's a breakdown in their own theology. We've seen a breakdown in their theology in that you have uh, politicians who are very open about their Roman Catholicism, who are also very public in their breach of doctrine and breach of Christian life, according to the and and is there any church discipline? There's there's no discipline. So I think in many many ways uh, the Roman Catholic Church is a mess. Um, how can you not look at the current Pope and see that he's contrary to Rome's own doctrine and of course Christian doctrine that we would hold in common with them on many many points? So it, yeah, I mean I when. I, I would say this. I would say that it is, it is very important for us to study Roman Catholicism. And in many respects, I'd say you don't quite know Lutheranism until you've studied Roman Catholicism because it takes on a, you know, if you, if you, do, if you do the solas, you know, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola Christus, etc., if you do that in a vacuum, that's a problem because it takes on a life of its own and becomes a really bizarre thing. It's really, again, you, if you look at the Augsburg Confession, the foundational document of uh, the Lutheran Church, you'll see that it says we're in agreement with Rome on these points, and we're in disagreement with them on these other points and in these particular ways. As you understand that, then, it helps you under, self-identify as why I'm a Lutheran, why I'm a Lutheran by conviction. Yeah. So that, um, on the one hand, yeah, I, I would never suggest that anyone go to a Roman Catholic church because the Roman Catholic church is a mess. But I would suggest that Lutherans take the time to study Roman Catholicism on its own terms in order to better understand what we share in common and what we reject. And there is much, of course, that we share in common with the Roman Catholic Church, too, at least in regard to you know, moral issues and that kind of thing. Please. 
just a quick point uh, regarding the, the church discipline uh, and things. Nancy Pelosi's own priest in San Francisco was refusing her communion, and she went to the Vatican to get communion from the current pope. Yeah. So, you, you know, you talk about... So he was trying, you know, right. to do good, do a good job. But I mean, it's every bit as fractious and divided. I mean, I, I'm kind of the first, maybe to a fault, to bemoan the state of the LCMS and the state of our disunity and the the same kinds of shenanigans that go on. It's just worthwhile to point out that Rome is not any more straight on that point. And I think many people, especially clergy people, maybe young men in particular who are clergy, have a tendency to see Rome through rose-colored glasses and think that the problems we experience here in the LCMS are somehow uh, not as bad in Rome. Yeah, that's an illusion. Hmm. Okay, was there anything else? Did we get to all the hands? All right, let's... um. Move right ahead to question 43 in the text. But the question is not about Scripture, for biblical Scriptures are received by both sides. But the point in controversy is this, what is the true ancient and Catholic sense of the Holy Scriptures? This is the whole controversy. How can a common person and layman decide? All right, so if you look at the disagreement between Rome and Augsburg, you see that we're agreed on the point that the scriptures are authoritative and are the apostolic teaching. But what is it that they're saying? That's the point of controversy. And how on earth can a layman, as he puts it, uh, decide who's right? Okay, so I think a a good question. Here's his answer. It is easy to settle this controversy. For since Holy Scripture is a light shining in darkness and enlightening the eyes, it sets forth and interprets itself in clear words. For one and the same doctrine is repeated in Scripture in many places and is gradually explained more clearly for this reason, that one might more surely and certainly seek the true sense by comparing passages." Besides, God himself has drawn together into a brief summary form the entire Holy Scripture summary heads of the heavenly doctrine as much as necessary for everyone unto salvation. The Greeks aptly gave this summary the name catechesis. But the old Germans, and an even better term for it, layman's Bible. If then a layman understands scripture according to those chief parts of catechesis, the true meaning and interpretation will in no wise escape him. Okay, so what what Chemnitz is drawing on is the existence of catechisms that stretch back to the earliest days. And those catechisms from the Didache, which is the earliest extant catechism we have, all the way forward, have certain commonalities to them. And among the almost universal commonalities are the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Usually, something about baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
What Chemnitz's argument is, is that from the very beginning of Christendom, the scriptures have been condensed into this catechesis or this layman's Bible, these catechisms, and that is sufficient enough for the layman, if he knows it and understands it, to determine the essence and meaning of scripture in all controversies. And I think he's exactly right. I think he's exactly right. So if you know those documents, you're going to know and be able to settle for yourself who's right on the question of, say, justification or the question of uh, the divinity of Christ, to go earlier, or the question of the operation of the will in conversion or any other of the major controversies um, that we've dealt with. Okay? Yes, I see a hand. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I see what you're saying. Now it is. It would be worth. Uh, it would be worth mentioning that. So catechisms have been thoroughgoing in the West. We see that continued in Rome. Rome has its own catechism, and it's worthwhile reading. I mean, you can pick up a Roman Catholic catechism, the latest one, used for ninety nine cents, and it's worth uh, poking around in and finding out what they actually believe, the way they state it. Uh, I've done much study in the Roman Catechism, and I find it actually to be a beautifully written and well-constructed work. I, I'm kind of jealous of it in terms of the, the structure and the way it's written, not the content, of course. <laughs> that's, the, that's the difference. Uh, now, when you look at the Reformation, there are catechisms that come out of the more serious reform tradition. So you can even think of something like the Westminster Catechism, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but you, Newer denominations like the Assemblies of God, Church of Christ, right. Southern, the Southern Baptists, every one of them doesn't have a catechism. Right. And I, I, it's almost angrily you look at them and say, why is it you're not teaching it or you don't have it written down? You have to go to ask the pastor and then you find out, well, he doesn't know it either. It's a great point. So this anti-credalism and the anti-credal churches, you can see are, are a historical anomaly. They're, they're brand new. And I think that the most mainstream this ever got, of course, was Rick Warren and his statement, deeds, not creeds, which, of course, ironically is a creed. So in a sense, a creed is unavoidable, even if that creed is we have no creed. <laughs> it's still a creed. That's still your creed. Um, but your point is well taken. And I think if you have anti-credal or non-credal churches, your red flags ought to immediately go up that this is an aberration, an aberrant church. Uh, it's also going to be subject to the whims, as you pointed out, of a particular pastor or a particular um, figure who's at the head of these congregations. So that, too, kind of gives you red flags in terms of cult leader or cult of personality, right? Yes, please. Just a little to add to that. Um, I don't even remember when and where, how long, many years it was ago, but I I, um, had a reason to talk to this pastor of an independent church. I don't know what they called themselves. But I was in his office for a few minutes, and I looked on his bookshelf, and there was Luther's small catechism. 
Mm-hmm. And I uh, pointed out to, uh, to him, and he said, yes, we refer to that a lot. as a very good catechism. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Too funny. Well, insofar as they get it, good. Insofar as they don't, tragic. Become Lutheran then, if it's that good. Which is really ultimately when you, I mean, when you look at the creed, when you excuse me, when you look at the small catechism of what does it consist? The Ten Commandments, scriptural. I mean, just right out of Exodus twenty. The creed, which, while not directly out of scripture, every line of the creed can be backed up with countless references in scripture. The Our Father, right out of scripture. Four verses on holy baptism, right out of scripture. One verse on confession absolution, right out of Scripture, and the words of institution, right out of Scripture. That's the catechism. How are you going to argue with it or argue against it? Um, and then again, as, as Chemnitz is pointing out to kind of draw us back into the argument of the text, it's not necessary that a layman understand every last word of the Scriptures in order to form a theological opinion. It's not necessary that a layman ascertain the IQ of this pastor or that pastor, this theologian or that theologian, and then make his determination on the basis of his IQ. It's not necessary, and I even, I kind of tell this this autobiographically because it was kind of a you know, moment for me in my own development theologically. I'm sitting at seminary, and I've I've got stacks of books of people who say that the Lord's Supper is uh, symbolic, and I've got stacks of books by people who say that the Lord's Supper is, in fact, the presence of Christ's body and blood received by mouth. What am I going to do my theology by? Volume, <laughs> number of theologians credentials, this is no way to do theology. So into the word you go, and as a layman, into the catechism you go, and you'll have the answer. You'll have the answer. So I think Chemnitz's point is really well taken that um, this is the layman's Bible, the catechism, and from that you will, in fact, if you just pay attention to the words of Jesus and nothing else, you'll have your answer. And that really was a breakthrough for me on the Lord's Supper. I mean, I grew up as a Lutheran. I grew up believing the Lord's Supper. I was well catechized, everything else. But when you're, about, when you're going to seminary and you're about to stake your entire life and ministry on the public proclamation and teaching of said truths, it probably benefits and behooves you to make sure you have those right. <laughs> and so I was quite willing in seminary to entertain the opposite view. And as I'm sitting there with my two stacks of books, it finally dawns on me that this is no way to do theology. And straight into the words of Jesus you go, and you will notice that he says nothing at all about symbol, even though he has plenty of words for symbol at his disposal but instead plainly says, this is my body, this is my blood. And Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. I could care less if if the stack was 100,000 books of men saying the opposite of what you say. Here is what you say. I can do no other. And lo and behold, that's what Christians have held for 2,000 years in East and West, that when Christ says is, that means is. Okay, so that's, 
a nice secondary layer of confirmation. All right, so yeah, this is, um, this is Chemnitz's point, is the layman can figure all this out if he is simply acquainted with the core text of Christianity, uh, the Catechism, the layman's Bible. All right, let's uh, move on to question 44. Are people to be exhorted to read, hear, and meditate on that word, both written and oral, as it is commonly called? And Chemnitz here answers, by all means. For Scripture can make us wise unto salvation, and it is profitable for doctrine, patience, comfort, admonition, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Wow, interesting. Interesting to note, because according to Chemnitz, Scripture is much more than mere law and gospel, as if Scripture in one part is saying you're naughty, and Scripture in another part is saying that's okay because Jesus. Uh, That's not his answer. Scripture will indeed make you wise unto salvation, but what else? It's profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, that's the ascertaining of certain truths. But it's also profitable for patience. That's a virtue. For comfort, that is for consolation, will be consoled by the word of God. For admonition, that is it points us forward to what we should think and say and do. For reproof. Reproof and correction, of course, going together, um, they are requiring a change of course, a negation or reversal. And so the scriptures also correct us in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And also they instruct us in righteousness. The righteousness freely given in Christ and the righteousness worked within us by the Holy Spirit, what we would call justification and sanctification that a man might be equipped and prepared for every good work. And then many scripture references given from St. Paul's writings. And that word, preached and heard, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It is likewise the immortal seed by which people are reborn. On hearing this word of God... People were pricked in the heart. That's a reference to Acts 2. Other references are given. And Paul declared that faith is or comes by hearing the word of God. That's Romans 10.17. So Romans 10.17 and Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 77, and Psalm 119 speak very aptly of meditation on the divine word. Okay, so all Christians want to immerse themselves in the word insofar as they're able. And we have a unique ability to do that given the technological developments, the printing press and the internet. We have an astounding ability to be immersed in the word of God. Question 45, but is it certain that God himself works all these things? Is it then magic to ascribe to either the syllables and letters of Scripture or to the frail voice of a preacher such power and efficacy? You know, it's just, uh, it's just ink on a page. <laughs> it's just the vibration of a sinner's vocal cords. Chemnitz answers, it is doubtless true that this power and efficacy does not lie in syllables as characters, 
Nor do we mean this, that the voice of the preacher which passes away is so efficacious of itself. For to illumine and convert hearts and initiate and affect repentance, faith, and new obedience. Now, by the way, this is a tangent, but well worth noting because this is a threefold pattern that Chemnitz repeats throughout. He doesn't just say repentance and faith, but he says what? Repentance, faith, and new obedience. So, again, if we were to sort of categorize this, put this in categories, we might put repentance and faith in the category of justification and new obedience in the category of sanctification. But do note this threefold usage of Chemnitz because, again, as we progress along, you're going to see this repeat over and over again. And this is very germane to certain controversies that have uh, developed in the modern Lutheran church of the 20th and 21st century. So once more from Chemnitz, for to illumine and convert hearts and initiate and affect repentance, faith, and new obedience are solely works of God himself, who works these things in men by his almighty power. And without that power of the Spirit, Scripture is only a dead letter. Okay. So again, the point isn't that these words or the letters or the vocables are some sort of magic incantation. If that were true, no one could ever summarize the Word of God or paraphrase the Word of God. You'd have to use the exact language, but even then, you couldn't do it in English either, or German or Swahili or Spanish or any other. You would have to use the original Hebrew or the original Greek, you see. So that's not the nature of God's Word. The nature of God's Word uh, is such that the Holy Spirit empowers it, empowers the letters on the page, empowers the vibrations of the sinful preacher's throat such that that Word of God goes forth and does what God desires. All right. So, continuing on where we left off, uh, as for the rest, God does not want to use such power without means, but has for that end appointed the ministry of the word and of the sacraments, through which, as regular means and instruments, he works, gives increase, and preserves. For therefore is the ministry of the New Testament called the ministry of the life-giving Spirit, through this ministry, namely the Spirit who makes alive, writes the word into hearts, so that we are thus transformed into the image of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, 8, and 18. And again, you can note how Chemnitz views this as a process and a telos that the word would have us be transformed into the image of the Lord. Chemnitz continues, and Paul declares that God is powerful or efficacious through the weapons of our warfare, which are those of the ministry itself. References given. Thus God illumines hearts through the word, he opens the heart of Lydia, but through the word heard from Paul. 
He converts, but through the word. He works and gives repentance, but through the hearing of the word. He stirs up faith by hearing, namely of the word preached. He is a God of all comfort, but through patience and comfort of scripture. He works obedience, but through the apostolic ministry. Therefore, people are to be diligently admonished, often and attentively, to read, hear, and meditate on that written and preached word, if they want God to work, increase, confirm, and preserve them, these great and salutary gifts. Now, if it were up to me to provide a singular proof text for everything Chemnitz is saying, it would be where Jesus tells his disciples, Take care how you hear. To the one who has, even more will be given. To the one who has not, because he's rejected what is simple, even what he has will be taken away. So, Jesus' own instruction and admonition in regard to our receipt of the word, here I think echoed wonderfully and fleshed out wonderfully by Chemnitz. Okay, so this... um, Reading, hearing, and meditating, uh, very important. And something that uh, Lutheran pastors used to talk a lot more about and and be a lot more systematic toward. And that is how one hears uh, on Sunday morning. So a very good practice, I know we kind of make fun of this, um, to ask maybe at Sunday lunch, what was the sermon about? Uh, If you're embarrassed by that, that's fine. Um, What was the gospel text about? (laughs) What happened there? And piece it back together and talk about various aspects of it. That's how we meditate upon the Word of God. You meditate upon it. um, So the the language that's often used is the idea of um, eating or consuming the Word of God. Because why? When you eat something... You don't just eat it like an alligator eats a zebra, all down at once. It's not how we're created. You chew it. You enjoy it. You experience the texture and the taste. You chew it and cut it down into swallowable amounts. As you swallow it, even then your body painstakingly digests it, extracting from it what it needs. So this idea of um, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. That phrase that enters our collects and our prayers here in the Western Church. It's the idea that the Word of God, it's not enough to just go, okay, I had my derriere in the pew, check, check, out I go. That's a way of thinking, it's an error of falling into thinking that the Word of God is a magical spell or incantation that simply works of its own. It's only a step away from thinking, okay, I've just learned Chemnitz by osmosis. (laughs) It's only a step away from thinking that that's how God's word works. As long as my eyes pass over it, it suddenly has a magical effect on my heart. Not so. We must take care how we hear and exercise ourselves in the word of God. And again, the way we do this, I think, can be done very playfully. What does it mean? What does it not mean? Where does it lead you? And does that lead you into a place that accords with Scripture or is not in accord with Scripture? (laughs) These are ways to meditate and chew on God's Word 
to see what's there, what the Lord has for us for our nourishment. Um, you know, as you're chewing, you may chew and you may find a part that's not digestible, and you spit it out. And the same thing is true as we chew over God's word. We may find that some of our reflection is not digestible, is not good to swallow. And so that's the part we spit out and we come to know the text more thoroughly. All right, well, I just encourage you along that way because it's kind of something we've lost as we've really tried in our context to champion the efficacy of the word and that the word works on its own and does all things. What's potentially lost is that we might chew and digest and take care how we receive and internalize and experience that word. Okay, please, sorry. On occasion, I, I hear a, uh, another Christian say, that sermon didn't speak to me. I, I didn't get anything from it. And it always makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, and I'd, I'd like your thoughts. I think you have addressed a lot of the answer to this, but I think we're not hearing, we're not working on our hearing uh, for example, I think we go, a lot of us, including me, we go into the sanctuary and we're talking and we're greeting people. We're not in a prayerful, we're not in a reverent mode preparing to receive God's word. And uh, But I'm not sure, what, would, what should I be saying or what could I say to that person? Uh, because I know the preparation that goes in. If there are two pastors in a church or a vicar and a pastor and one will say, well, that didn't speak, or I, I like this pastor's delivery more. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem fair and right. Would you comment on that? Sure. I, okay, so if I could try to attack this at the root as best as I can, a real problem, and this is going to be preaching to the choir for a lot of you, okay? <laughs> so I'll try to make it quick and not put you to sleep. But a real problem has come here in America where we elevate the sermon. That's the real thing. And the word of God that was read before was just that, a cold, dead reading. And now the sermon's going to really speak to me. I think from that error flows all these other errors. That reading is, as our liturgy says, the living voice of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. And everyone says, thanks be to God. That is to say, not that we even need to pit the sermon against the scriptures, but that the scriptures are the high point. If you aren't fed by God's word going into your ears in that moment, that's not a problem with the chef, and it's not a problem with the food. It's a problem with you refusing to take your fork, put it in your mouth, okay? Sometimes it's even, you know, like infants, you know, you right in the mouth and, you know, you're making noises and they get it in the mouth. But then anyone who's had an infant knows what happens next. Out it comes, okay? And so that might even be a more fitting analogy for when the scriptures are read and proclaimed, God is putting them in our ears and how quickly we cast them out. So in the first place you weren't fed, you must not have paid attention then when God was speaking. Now, the preacher can, of course, I mean, he's a human being and he's a fallen human being. He can, of course, aid you in your understanding of that word, or he can inhibit you in your understanding of that word. And I understand that different strokes for different folks and different styles uh, appeal, etc., etc., et okay? Uh, there are bad sermons that obscure the text, and there are good sermons 
that show forth the text, maybe in a way that contemporary hearers can better understand. So that, th- those are aspects of the preaching or explication of that word. Um, there are some sermons that, you know, I think, I think it's helpful for preachers to think. I know I think this way in terms of like, what do you intend this sermon to do? Sometimes it's just reinforcement of what we all already know. And that's a kind of very helpful sermon in and of itself. Sometimes the sermon is for no other purpose than that we would marvel at the glorious graciousness of God and rejoice in that. And that's fine too. Um, But I think too much of that kind of sermon can lend itself to this idea that uh, sitting in the pews on a Sunday morning is a spectator sport. And that sort of lends itself to, well, the scripture is just a reading. I don't pay any attention to that. Now the guy's up there. Let's see if he's a rhetorician. Let's see if he can speak to me. And if he can't, he fails. This church fails. The Holy Spirit's not there. I mean, you could see the error in this entire way of thinking. So, you know, going in, and I think, okay, so how would I do this from an end user standpoint? I would go like this. As soon as I cross into the sanctuary, I'm recognizing that it is a sanctuary. It is a holy place, sanctus. It is a holy place where I hear God's word. That's what makes it holy. All right, so that's going to put me in a different mindset. And then I'm going to pay a special attention to two events in the divine service, special attention to the reading of the scriptures and the pastor's proclamation of those scriptural truths. That's the first thing. And the second thing I'm going to pay particular attention to are the words of institution where Christ says, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and I'm going to acknowledge that I am meeting the living Lord who gives there to me his sacrifice, body, and blood for my forgiveness. So those are the two most important things where my focus is going to be on. When I listen to the text and the sermon, I'm not going to be listening for some idiosyncratic way in which they speak to me. I'm going to be listening for what it is that God is saying to his people and how might that apply to me. And again, that's largely what the pastor is doing is applying it to you so that in your thoughts or in your words or in your deeds, uh, the intent of the sermon is to say, we are at point A, let's move to point B. Maybe that's a greater understanding. Maybe that's a correction. Maybe that's a reproof. Uh, Maybe that's an admonition. Maybe that's a comfort. Maybe that's um, the development of some other Christian virtue. Maybe it's clarification of doctrine. Maybe it's simply centering our eyes once more on Christ. Maybe it's all of the above. But again, where am I pulling these things from? Well, directly from the scriptures. Directly where St. Paul speaks to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus, and tells them and tells the whole church what preaching is to be about and what God's word is meant to do among the people. Yeah. So I can, I can, I can fully appreciate if someone says, I love the scriptures and was fully fed by them, but the pastor's sermon maybe obscured those things for me more than they illumined those things for me. Fair play. Maybe the pastor messed up. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, but does that sort of answer your question and, and maybe try to give you some, some ways of, of thinking about this? Okay, great. Uh, any, other, any other thoughts on this point? Yeah, please. I think I've heard you say before that the sermon is 
is the word of God in its own sense. Am I dreaming or? Well, okay. I, how did you say that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I can clarify. Uh, <laughs> Please do. Yeah, so the, the sermon is going to speak verbatim God's word and paraphrase of God's word. And insofar as it does that, there's no problem saying this sermon is the word of God. I mean, if I, if I say that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the, the sins of the earth, you know, I've changed maybe some of the language, but I'm saying the same thing, right? So how are, you, how are we not going to say that that's, you know, or Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away your sins? Like, that's not a direct quotation of Scripture, but it nonetheless is the Word of God, is it not? And so, so you can look at that. But, you know, when the pastor is giving his analogy, that's not necessarily the Word of God. Um, if the pastor makes a mistake, obviously it's clear that that's not the Word of God. So there's ways to differentiate. But again, I don't think that that's so much important. Is the pastor, even if it's his own word, even if it's his own analogy, even if it's his own application, is that in harmony with the Word of God? If the answer is yes, then the distinction is pretty unimportant functionally for me because I'm going, well, that's true and that's true, so... Let it be true for me, and let that have its let that word have its work within me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's all the time we have today. So we'll plan on picking back up with this theme. If you flip over, I want to kind of wet your taste buds um, as you flip over to page forty-four and forty-five. Lo and behold, you're going to see some lists and groupings of the canonical books of the Old and New Testament. So we'll have opportunity to speak about the nature of Scripture and the nature of the canon next week. The Lord be with you.